Welcome to the podcast of the UU Area Church at First Parish in Sherborne. No matter who you are, who you love, we welcome you into our community of religious seekers. Please join us for our Sunday worship services each week at 10.30 a.m. More information can be found on our website at uuac.org or visit our Facebook page at Sherborne Unitarian Universalist. Enjoy the sermon. An anarchist Quaker's prayer to soothe anxiety, what my therapist said when she closed her office because of coronavirus, by Ayu Sutriasa. Hello, sweet one. I see how much you care about the world, about your communities, about all of us surviving plagues and capitalism and a world on fire. That clench in your throat, the knot in your gut, the tightness in your breath, This is how our bodies try to hold the world's anguish. We write the wrongness into our bodies, a beautiful and devastating lament. Just because your body can hold all the tragedy, the panic, the tension that it is holding right now, that doesn't mean you must go on holding it all, forever. The loving grandmother in you knows this to be true. Set it down, somewhere nearby, so you can pick it up again when you need to but just for a moment, relinquish your illusions of control. Allow yourself to see the many-headed truth monster. It might not all be okay. It might end in flames and death and horror, no matter what you do. Take a moment to acknowledge how awful and sad that truth is. And how not even the worst possible scenario would take away from your inherent worthiness. Simultaneously, it is true that human beings have always fought for one another, cared for one another fiercely, and carried the world's anguish in our bodies. And there are small truths, like that we cannot control the future, no matter how much we wish we could. Don't worry when the truths contradict one another. Real truths often do. No matter what, whether it turns out okay in the end or not, you carry the divine within you. You are enough not because of the things you do, but because of who you are fundamentally, intrinsically, always and without exception. Take a breath or two to allow yourself to know this. And when we pick up the anxiety again, let us aim for flexibility. Movement, space for breath to get in and out of your ribcage, gentleness for the things we can't do, and integrity giving us the strength and resolve to turn our sometimes excruciating caring into solidarity, mutual aid, and direct action. We are each one person breathing this one breath with common divinity. We can do this together. So here is our world. Beautiful and terrible things continue to happen. Don't stop believing. What is it? Catch the feeling? There is a feeling? Hold on to the feeling and keep our eyes soft, Heather, and keep our words true, no matter what the news. This is what you and I are about. We know there is no answer but to love each other. We bear witness against destruction and pain. And then we gather here in community, whether it's here in person or those of you at home, to practice being the person that we're trying to be. We cannot do everything, but we can do something, and that something is never nothing. 
So friends, let us ring the bells that still can ring and forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. Please say with me, that is how the light gets in. I almost um, didn't do this sermon today. I was going to change it with something different. And my reason for that is that I thought I would cause pastoral harm by revisiting all of the stories that have happened over this last year. And Sarah and, uh, and Heather in India can testify to this because in our, we have a worship meeting every Tuesday. And I was like, I don't know, you, I don't know you guys. Like, what do you think? Um, and I don't know if I had it in me to go back and, and to look at all of this stuff. Um, but I think, um, actually, it's India who said, you know, Nathan, like, usually, usually you're pretty good at sort of holding uh, the light and the dark together. And, um, and then somebody else said, reminded me how important traditions are in this time of so much change. I think, Heather, you had talked about that. We've talked about that a lot as a, as a staff team together here about holding on to things that we need to hold on to because so much has changed and been lost. So that felt compelling to me. And do you know what? It felt really good to do this, I must say. It really did. I came across a, um, a quote, just as I was about to start writing yesterday, from Helen Keller. I get these quotes in my email. It's was the nick of time. And the, she, she wrote and she said, although the world is full of suffering, it is also full of overcoming it. Hmm. I needed to hear that. Because that is true about this year, this past year, as you will hear. It also is really important so that we don't forget in the fog of all that happens, that we don't forget to remember the people and the places and the things that have happened. I take that, that, that work seriously. We are a community of memory. It's important to remember, even when it's hard. Okay, so here are my choices about the top 10 stories, themes, religious, not some of them really religious at all, um, that I've spent the last... Uh, I have a file that I just throw things into over the year. The file got super big, so I've pared it down. Uh, it's a little long, you guys. Is that okay? We're used to it. Yes, you are. And I, I sent the staff text thread. I was like, I wonder your comfy pants tomorrow. All right. <clears throat> we do have a little bit of an intermission, so you'll notice that part. <clears throat> Number 10. Jesus loves the brown, pop-eyed, atwa slippery frog. You don't know about the story? Caleb Ofori is a 39-year-old Ghanaian herpetologist. Anyone know what a herpetologist is? All right, Tom, that's exactly right. Our reptiles, basically zoologists for reptiles. His name is Caleb. He lives in Ghana, but his friends call him Noah. Why do they call him Noah? This year, while the Pope and religious leaders were writing and signing a document called Faith in Science, an appeal for the Conference of Parties, which called for urgent, radical, and responsible action to reduce carbon emissions to the, to the um, Climate Change Conference in Glasgow. So 
all these religious leaders. They were writing that Caleb was in the mountains in Ghana outside the capital of Accra collecting these small brown pop-eyed frog. It has tiny teeth and a shrill voice. It's the only place that they live. And it's threatened by government-backed plans to mine for aluminum. It kills all of the frogs. So Caleb is in these mountains, and he's collecting these frogs with his colleagues, and he's building, you guys, an amphibian ark until it's safe for them to return. But he doesn't have any money. So what does he do? He begins to work on what he calls, I love this, environmental evangelism. <laughs> and he goes to all of the Pentecostal churches, of which there are many in Ghana, to raise money and give sermons on behalf of the frogs. He says, as part of his sermon, where a forest may be seen as simply a source of firewood or aluminum to start with, biblical truth, these folks are very biblical, they're Pentecostal, biblical truth holds people to see the forest as something to be cared for, for the glory of God. Do it for the frogs, Caleb says. The reason I lift up this story, small story, inconsequential you may think, is that for too long religion has been portrayed and preached as an enemy of science. I'm just like so tired of it. And climate change has been cast as global and distant and not personal. I mean, there's a fire yesterday in Monterey, you guys. Caleb's example shows us what the power of like one person can do because we're going to remember Caleb and building an ark for a frogs. We're not going to remember the Pope's decree about climate change. Remember the stories and remember that you, we, have a voice to share our stories because it's going to take these voices to begin the macro change to talk about it. The globe, as a matter of fact, Heather, <clears throat> Is they've made a commitment, and I think it's their, you know, whatever anniversary this is, a commitment to lift up climate change, the stories about climate change in local ways this entire year, every single week. And they're completely erasing any stories that have to do with the debate whether it's real or not. That's why I subscribe to The Globe. Okay. Number nine. We cannot live in fear every step of the way. This is a story from last weekend. So I'm going to scooch 2021 to 2022 because I get to do that, right? Yeah. Story from last weekend. Freedom of pulpit, Heather. And it began with a knock on the door. Rabbi Charlie let the man who had knocked onto his synagogue, the congregation Beth Israel, it's the suburbs of Fort Worth, Texas. The man was cold, so Rabbi Charlie, as he's known, made him a, a cup of tea. The morning Shabbat service began. Charlie says, Rabbi Charlie says, I was facing away from the congregation. When Jews pray, we pray towards Jerusalem. So his back was to everybody. Then he heard a click. He finished his prayer, and during the silent one that followed, he stepped down to talk to the man to whom he had given tea. And he said, I spoke with him one-on-one. -on -one. I said that he was welcome to stay for the rest of the service and that if he had just come to get warm, that was okay too. He didn't have to feel like he was being rude. 
While I was talking to him, Rabbi Charlie says, he pulled out a gun. For the next 11 hours, you guys heard this story. It was last Saturday. The man held hostage the rabbi and a few of the congregants who had chosen to attend the service. Here's what I want to lift up. This interview that the rabbi had this week. Why did, what did you talk about for 11 hours, Rabbi Charlie? We talked about a lot. He dictated the conversation. We responded as best we could. We wanted him to see us as human beings. Rabbi, will you offer a tea to stranger again? Good question, right? Rabbi Charlie, this is one individual. I have led thousands and thousands of services at this congregation over 15 years here. This was the first time something had happened along those lines. So when someone comes to the door, yes, I'm going to do the same kind of visual scan that I did. And I'm going to assume that even if they do not look like the stereotypical person who's going to come to a Jewish synagogue, I want them there. Whether there's somebody who's Jewish, who's coming in from another community or from our community, or whether they're not Jewish, and maybe they're exploring Judaism for the first time, or they just want to see what a service is about, and they're wondering, can I belong here? And I want them to know that they are going to belong. Listen to this. Hospitality, Rabbi Charlie says, means the world. Hospitality means the world. And then last question, how will security change at the synagogue? Good question. I don't know, says Rabbi Charlie. But I will tell you that we will do what we always do, which is the best we can. We are imperfect human beings. Whether we're in a synagogue or a church or a mosque, whether we're religious or not, we are imperfect people trying to live the best we can. And we pray, I pray, that the preparations we make and the choices we make are going to be for the sake of heaven. And they're going to lead to a positive result. And this is what I wanted us to listen to. We can't know the future, says Rabbi Charlie. We can't know what's coming. And we also can't live in fear every step of the way. That's why I included the story, other. Number eight, John Lewis's tears. Who's John Lewis? He's actually the late and famed Georgia representative and voting rights activist. And why is he crying, everybody? Because the bill, some of you whispered behind your mask, named after him that would have restored and strengthened parts of the Voting Rights Act from 1965 and was defeated after Senators Sinema and Manchin refused to carve out of the filibuster rule. By the way, the filibuster was used to prevent civil rights laws going back in the day. These two senators voted to carve out the filibuster to extend the de debt limit a month ago, just as a reminder. Meanwhile, this week, Senator McConnell waved off voting concerns since, quote, black people turn out as heavily as Americans. 
You can, wa- you can watch it. While all of this is happening, a replacement elections board in Lincoln County, Georgia, made their plans to close all seven polling places and require in-person voters to report to one centralized location. It requires at least a 15-mile drive to the one polling place to cast a ballot in a county with no public transportation at all. No Uber, no Lyft, no buses, no trains, just pickup trucks. Similar laws are being acted by legislatures all across the country this year in response to the lie, important to remind ourselves, the lie that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump. These include limited ballot boxes, adding ID requirements, tightening ballot request deadlines, restricting mass mailings of absentee applications to voters, all done even though there are no reports of widespread voter fraud. Like zero, zilch. Now, Nathan, why is this religious? Why is your list? Well, first of all, because I get to do that, because it's the freedom of the pulpit. But secondly, did you know the first ballot in, uh, on these shores was made to elect a minister? First one. We have, you and I, a heritage of congregational polity and governance, which the polity is just a church word for governance. You guys elected me, chose me to be your minister. I was hanging out in the playground with Emerson, who was three, and Karen was about to have Ella waiting for you to decide whether you wanted to have me as your minister in 2003, May. That vote, that ability to vote is yours. Imagine if, like, you know, we just, like, moved all the pews. I don't know what we'd have to do. Like, just move all the pews. You'd have to drive to Maine or something to make the vote, okay? That's what's happening. Our democracy is in trouble. On that bright note... Number seven, religion gets used. Ask me, Nathan, what does religion get used for? Ask me. You guys, it gets used for everything, except for like the good stuff, it seems like. This year, at the, do you remember the, the insurrection was 2021? Just to, I know it feels maybe like a lifetime ago or something, but there were people carrying Christian signs and messages. There was the guy with the fur hat and the horns. He led people in prayer. He said, let us now pray together. And everyone went to their knees. Christian nationalism. Talk about a phrase that feels like to me a contradiction in terms. In the immediate wake of the insurrection, Christian leaders spoke out to denounce what they saw as the misuse of their faith. Russell Moore, who's the president of the policy arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, and I want us to disabuse our our progressive liberal folks' prejudice, I think, against Southern Baptists when you hear this. He said, when he saw a Jesus save sign displayed near the gallows built by the rioters, I was enraged to a degree that I have not been enraged in memory. This is blasphemous, he said. 
Amen, Dara. Still, the fact that we saw QAnon, white supremacy, and white Christianity all carried together in a violent attack against the Capitol means that particularly white Christians have some real soul-searching to do. Meanwhile, tens of thousands of government and private sector employees are seeking religious exemptions from COVID vaccine mandates, even though most religious leaders refuse to back such requests, and there are no scriptural references against vaccines in the Bible. Just to, you hear, so you hear a pulpit say that. There are not, there's nothing there. But there are a lot of messages in there about vaccine, about people taking care of one another, which is what vaccines do. I'm unabashedly pro-vaccine, just so you know that. It's for these reasons and more that so many people decide that I'm not religious. <laughs> like, I don't want the word. I want nothing to do with churches and synagogues and temples and organized religion. I mean, Heather, it makes our job kind of hard, doesn't it? Here's my question to us and to those of you at home. And I, I know this is human nature because I do it too, but here's my question. Why do we let you and I, the worst actors and the worst things said and done in religion's name, lay claim to being religious? Why does that happen? I want us to remember that the things in, that are being said in Jesus' name would be unrecognizable to him. He was so far left, so... <laughs> You wouldn't like him. He would be like two, he'd be like AOC times 12. I'm guessing. So when you hear yourself say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, not religious, my question to you is, why can't we have this word back? And why can't you say you are both? Because I am both. I am both spiritual, most the, sometimes, a little bit, and religious. Spirituality is what you do in private. Religion is what you do in public. Use the word. Don't let these people have the, make it worse. Please, this is my request. You can sense my urgency because I'm tired of being embarrassed about what I do. I'm not embarrassed at all. I'm proud of what I do, but I want you to be proud with me, really proud. I don't feel a little fiery today, Heather. Good. In memory. Number six, in memory. As the president said last year before his inauguration, it is hard to remember, but we need to remember if we want to heal. So I've done this the last several years. It's so important to remember the people we've lost. Friends, 450,000 in 2021 in America have died from COVID. Just a reminder for those of you that we hear that people go, it's just the flu. 450,000 people, 857,000 total in America, the worst country by deaths of any other. Also, Betty White, Bell Hooks, 
Hank Aaron, Colin Powell, Stephen Sondheim, John Didion, Desmond Tutu, Bob Dole, DMX, Larry King, Cicely Tyson, E.O. Wilson, Meatloaf on Friday, Beverly Clearly, Thich Nhat Hanh yesterday. And closer to home in our midst this year, Peter Putnam, remember this congregation in the past, Owen Sermon, Dot Widmeyer, Tom Belote, Maria Salomeo Schmidt. Intermission. I've been told I have to finish before noon because that's when coming of age and uh, youth group starts. And I'm, I'm hopeful, though I can't promise. <laughs> okay, friends, number five. Uh, abortion. This year, the Supreme Court heard Mississippi's bid to overturn the landmark Roe versus, Roe versus Wade decision establishing a right to abortion while also refusing to block Texas's enactment of a law allowing, I still can't believe this, private citizens to enforce a ban on abortions after cardiac activity can be detected in early pregnancy. So like our early story, it's easy to think that these cases are being fought between religious people, right, and everybody else. This is a prime example of like, I'm not religious. If you don't, you know, if you're pro-choice, I'm not religious. But then in this story, the one I'm going to highlight, I discovered that it's not that simple. For example, did you know that one of the most surprising objections to the Texas law is not from Planned Parenthood. It's from rabbis who claim it violates their freedom of religion. Jewish law, they argue, not only allows for abortion after six weeks, but in some cases requires it. Furthermore, Jews are required to offer their neighbors aid. They're required to offer their neighbors aid, even though the law prohibits them from offering aid to a woman seeking an abortion. The rabbis argue that this law is based on an explicitly and exclusively Christian understanding of personhood. And this is what I want us to hear. The Texas governor, Governor Greg Abbott, referred to this view in his remarks at the bill signing, saying, our creator endowed us with the right to life and yet millions of children lose their right to life every year because of abortion. All right, so that's a view that we all think is the only view, or the religious view. However, Rabbi Danny Horowitz, in an article for the Religion News Writers Association, said Judaism teaches that potential life is sacred, but nevertheless that a fetus is not a human being. 
Judaism is neither pro-life or pro-choice. It depends on the life and it depends on the choice. So usually the arguments that we hear rely on concepts of individual rights and freedoms, which are then pitted against different assertions of individual rights and freedoms. And that's why it's an intractable kind of conversation. But this notion that personhood is different and it depends on your faith perspective really kind of made me think differently about this issue and challenge some of my assumptions. It looks possible. I mean, look, it's most likely that Roe v. Wade will be struck down this coming summer, returning it to the states. Massachusetts, where we live, has already put in laws of protection for women who seek to end their pregnancy. What will it mean for people, you and I, in this state to offer aid to women who live in states where abortion will not be legal or safe, is my question. All right, number four. <clears throat> Living and leading from our mortality. Some of you know, all the staff knows, a few of the board knows, that one of the first services I did in this sanctuary this coming year, this, this year in September, it was a Saturday, I think it might have been before, first Sunday back was a wedding. I'd only done like one wedding, Jeff Barton and Karen Wessner, and um, the rest I'd done in person were funerals. So all I'd done in person. I was excited to do a wedding. So we had all these protocols, safe congregation team, sorry, the, the pandemic response team. We called it reopening team. Now we're calling it, we don't want to call it the closing team. That feels terrible. So we're just going to call it the pandemic response team. That's, that's our new tagline. Anyway, we had met. We had all these plans. Masking, distancing, air circulation. Bill Churchill, thank you so much. I mean, everything. And um, I'm in the back waiting for the couple to roll up with their limousine. Actually, the groom's up here and the, and the bride is coming. Um, and these are people I didn't know. They had asked, like, they just thought the church looked beautiful and could they do it? And I was like, absolutely. And it is a beautiful building. Amazing. So I'm there and this woman comes, comes in and she's not wearing a mask. And I tell her she's got to wear a mask. Please, ma'am, can you please wear a mask? Because I'm from the Midwest. I go, ma'am, that's what I do. And she says, uh, go to hell. And then she said, I wasn't Christian. And I'm an idiot. Um, but the groom, and then the bride shows up. And I didn't have anybody else here. Kathleen was on the piano. Um, I don't know what to do, but I knew I needed to be uh, I wanted to be happy for the couple, and I didn't want this to ruin their day. So she stormed out, she came back in, she had a mask on her chin, and I just had to go forward. This year, mask wars, school committee meetings going completely insane, vaccine wars, medical folk dealing with their own anger about the care of people who, whose COVID deaths could largely be avoidable if they had been vaccinated. It's exhausting, right? 
I subscribed to the Christian Century. It's a fantastic magazine. And in it, um, right after this happened, this exchange that I had, I read this interview with Luke Power. He's the dean of Duke University Divinity School. He's got a new book called No Cure for Being Human. Oh, that's her book? She's all, maybe they both, maybe they did it together then. No? Okay. Anyway, there is a book called No Cure for Being Human. So she teaches with him, and they interview together in this essay. And here's a little of what he said that I'm holding on to. I don't think of myself as a leader, he said. I'm a human being who loves people and loves God and is helping to navigate a community through this time. I found myself to be an encourager, a cheerleader, someone to bring a sense of calm and maybe a bomb when it's needed, a sense of joy and of life. I've had loved ones die during this pandemic, not just due to COVID, but also just to normal life. Life is still happening. We have to have a sense of our own humanity, which is humility, humus, right close to the ground. That's where the word human comes from, right close to the ground. In some ways, he said, this is what I want us to hear, masks we're all wearing are a visual sign of our mortality. And maybe that, he said, is a good thing. We are, he said, rightfully humbled. Rightfully humbled. And that's because... God says to draw near to the suffering. Drawing near to the suffering is not what makes us better people. It's just that's where the holy is. We've got a shocking opportunity, he wrote, to be humbled. I think we should take it. And you'll see that quote on my byline now because I loved it so much. Number three. Racial justice momentum, another story from our own community. Do you remember in the summer when we put all of those names, we had like about 100 names of people of color, black people that have been killed by police out front on the lawn? So right after um, the guilty verdicts and the racially charged murders of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, I got an email, I think from somebody in town, but I'm not sure, telling me that now that progress was being made, could we please stop littering our lawn with those signs? I uh, forwarded that to Molly House, who's our, one of our folks on racial justice team. Um, and I asked her to, <laughs> asked her to write back uh, on the church's behalf. And you know, to her credit, she did not use any curse words which is probably more than I, than I could have. Uh, yeah, that's why I asked Molly. We've got this notion that when something happens, we think the work is over. And we want to go back to things that actually don't litter our lawn, but also litter our, sort of disturb our consciousness about what the work that needs to be done. I notice it in myself. Now, we did take the signs down, not because we wanted them to stop littering, but because we had other signs to put up. This is like a roving, rotating visual uh, installation out front. We've had a lot of success with that. Success mean 
not attention, but success, that our val we get to use our values and talk about our values, about what it means to be religious people on Route 16. Anyway, I'm going to have more to say on this topic of racial justice next week. But I just want to highlight here how much personally, personally, and collectively, I think that us as a congregation are doing more to root our collective work in anti-racism and anti-oppression. And we do it not because like we're being nice or like it's a good thing to do, but because our fates are caught up in the fate of this work. Meaning racism and oppression hurts us too. And you will hear me talk next week about how that has been particularly true in, in my work around this addiction book that I swear is almost, it's at the editor, it's finally there. But um, I'm going to talk about how racism and privilege and white privilege and white supremacy culture has informed actually my own understanding of what it means to be a family member who's a, where addiction has taken one of my family members from us. What I mean to say is that we are making, we are making some movement on this. And when movement happens, so does momentum. And that's what I want us to notice. And I want you to notice your discomfort. Notice the litter that you feel. Notice, I really would just like a different kind of a sermon today. And that's your clue to lean in. That's your clue. Friends, two more. Number two, hey, Gallup polling agency, how about you stop trying to derail my hope train? <laughs> Gallup is such a harbinger of gloom and doom, especially about religion, especially about our job security, Heather. This year, Gallup reported this. Americans' membership in houses of worship has dropped below 50% for the first time in the eight decades they've ever kept records. Which, and it's, it's dropped 20% in the last 20 years, which is precisely the amount of time I've been a minister. I wonder if there's some sort of <laughs> correlation there. I, it's an uncomfortable correlation. Meanwhile, the Gallup reported how the pandemic has continued to affect religious attendance which remained far below pre-2020 levels. Gallup, on my hope train, I look out on a smaller than usual group of people that I'm used to talking to. By the way, a lot of congregations, pandemic aside, this would be a full house. And there, but there, there are you, all of you here, there are so many at home what I want to highlight is that what gets lost in all of the stats and the statistics and the doom and gloom is that we have innovated. We have demonstrated flexibility. You guys have demonstrated a willingness to try new stuff. I mean, I remember the debates about screens in the sanctuary. I was here for them. You've been willing to let go of things that are important to you, like orders of service or ushers coming by with plates of asking for money and you realizing you don't have any cash and feeling embarrassed. 
what I want to highlight, despite the people have asked me, like, how do you think the church is going to do? Like, what's going to happen? And what I tell people is that I don't know, but I do know that we're continuing to do the most important thing. Here, in this space, we remind ourselves that we are larger than ourselves. We need community to practice being the people we were trying to be. We need to celebrate how life is sacred at its core, not just about accumulating stuff and beating ourselves over the head with news. And we give each other courage to talk about hard things, to walk toward trouble, and be with those who are hurting, because that's where I believe God is. How does it feel to you to be an outlier? For me, it feels pretty damn good, because there's a lot of purpose there. So, will you get on the hope train with me? Then I want you to say, choo-choo. Okay, friends, our last story. Resilience. This is from the 17th century Latin word meaning rebound. Have you rebounded from stuff this year? Are you just completely tired? That's how I am, so I looked for stories of resilience and grit and poise to continue fueling my hope train. <laughs> Here it is. Number one, the group of moms who gathered last week on a high school field in Boston, they were, because parenting during COVID is past the point of absurdity, they went to not drink wine or socialize or strategize how to get a stupid COVID test, but instead for one reason, one reason only, to stand in a circle and scream. <laughs> Said Sarah Harmon, the organizer, I knew we all needed to come together and support each other in our rage, in our resistance, and our disappointment. Love it. We need to do this. Let's do it. Like next week, we can do it. Another story. How about American gymnast Simone Biles? Her decision to withdraw from the Olympics this summer to take care of her mental health rather than go for another Olympic medal helped inspire so many of us, myself included, to stop trying to be a superhero. Resilience does not mean pushing on. It means acknowledging need for rest and recovery and taking care of yourself. I needed Simone Biles' example the last couple weeks as we dealt with our child. Simone reminds us how to ask for help. And last, I want to thank Bill Churchill, who's sitting right up here, for the story that you shared with me from the New York Times about Amanda Gorman, who's the inauguration poet. And I just want to close by listening to her, okay? The truth is, she says, I almost declined to be the poet at the inauguration. I was terrified. 
I was scared of failing my people, my poetry. I was also terrified on a physical level. COVID was still raging and my age group could not get vaccinated yet. Just a few weeks before, terrorists assaulted the U.S. Capitol, the very steps where I would recite this poem. My friends told me to buy a bulletproof vest. I was likely going to pull out of the ceremony. But then I remembered that maybe being brave does not mean lessening my fear, but listening to it. So by the time the sun rose, I knew one thing for sure. I was going to be the poet on an inauguration day. And I can't say that I was confident in my choice, but I was completely committed to it. I want you to hear the difference. I wasn't confident about it, but I was committed to it. She says, I'm a firm believer that terror is trying to tell us of a force for greater than despair. In this way, I look at fear not as cowardice, but as a call forward. I look at fear not as cowardice, but as a call forward, a summons to fight for what we hold dear. And now more than ever, we have every right to be affected, afflicted, affronted. If you're alive, you're afraid. If you're not afraid, then you're not paying attention. The only thing we have to fear is having no fear itself having no feeling on behalf of whom and what we have lost, whom and what we love. So, she says, while the inauguration might have seemed like a ray of light, this past year for many has felt like a return to the same old gloom. Our nation is haunted by disease, inequality, and environmental crises. But through our fe- though our fears may be the same, we are not. If nothing else, this must be known. Even as we've grieved, we have grown. Even fatigued, we have found that this hill we climb is one that we must mount together. We are battered, but bolder, worn, but wiser. I am not telling you not to be tired or afraid. If anything, the very fact is that we're weary means that we are by by definition changed. We are brave enough to listen to and learn from our fear. This time we'll be different because this time we'll be different. We already are. Damn, she can preach. (laughs) Friends, I love you. We're in this together. Whatever the heck's going to happen. Thank you for being here.